For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, we'll look at a Tucson group that's celebrating 14 years of offering humanitarian aid in the desert. Andrew Brown meets homeless men and women in Tucson who are surviving under the sun. I'll talk with author Erica Westley about Fast Pitch, the untold history of softball, and the women who made the game. And Dimelo takes us to a celebration that commemorates 42 years of a local car club. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Fourteen years ago this month, a small group of Tucsonans embarked on a mission that now involves thousands of people from around the world. They're called the Tucson Samaritans, and reporter Nancy Montoya is working on a future story about them. Hello, Nancy. Hi, Mark. Um, You know, the Tucson Samaritans started 14 years ago, as you said, on a very, very hot July And people were dying in the desert. These are folks who, migrants, who were crossing the border illegally. And people of faith in this community got together, a small group, around six people, and said, you know, we can do something about this. If they just had some water and a little bit of food and maybe some medical attention, um, we could help people uh, in this area. And so that's what they did. Uh, Initially, they got a lot of pushback from Border Patrol, aiding and abetting. But eventually, as the years went on, the working relationship grew between Border Patrol and the Tucson Samaritans. Today, uh, the movement has grown to the point where there are volunteers who come from 30 countries around the world, and there are thousands of volunteers. And they do regular shifts every day for the past 14 years. Groups go out into the desert, and they leave food and water for migrants. Can you give us some idea about the way that they work with Border Patrol today? It has come full circle. Uh, it started with a lot of pushback. Then in the 90s, there was um, there was a lot of cooperation. There was a lot of compassion on the part of Border Patrol. And they would actually call the Tucson Samaritans in when they had a large group of migrants who needed uh, medical attention and they couldn't get first aid people out there. But in the past, I would say, five to eight years, The relationship has grown very strained. While the Tucson Samaritans continue their mission, they continue so under the watchful eye of Border Patrol. And there is almost a, a, I wouldn't call it antagonistic relationship, but it's, it's not a kumbaya relationship by no means. Has the legality of what the Samaritans are doing ever been challenged? It has not been challenged, not officially in court. Interestingly enough, though, the person who started the Samaritans 14 years ago is Reverend John Fife from the Southside Presbyterian Church. And back in the 1980s, John Fife led the entire Underground Railroad uh, campaign for Central Americans coming through. Uh, Southside Presbyterian Church has always been known as that real progressive, very liberal church. Back then, Uh, There were charges brought against Southside Presbyterian Church, John Fife in particular, um, and they were found guilty. Uh, Also, the big controversy then was that FBI agents actually infiltrated the church 
to get information on what Southside was doing. However, as far as the Tucson Samaritans go, there's kind of been a, a, a hands-off policy by Border Patrol. And we used to hear a lot about groups like the Minutemen wanting to patrol the border with their own um, objectives. Have the Samaritans themselves ever come into clash with these groups? I'm sure that in the past there have been uh, some cases, but I've not heard anything that was really prevalent. I think one reason is because the Samaritans are very clear that they're not there to provide transportation, to help people get from point A to point B. They're not there to encourage. They're not there to offer any kind of legal advice. They're simply there to provide food, water, and medical attention so that people don't die. Is there a counterpart to the Samaritans on the other side of the border? Are you aware of any groups in Mexico that are approaching this problem in this in a similar way? There is, actually. There are, are numerous shelters in Mexico, and especially now um, with a great influx of Central Americans coming across the border because of all the problems in Central America with gangs and the violence, you're seeing an influx of people traveling, leaving Central America, traveling through Mexico, and trying to get to the U.S. So consequently, at the border, shelters have been set up uh, specifically for Central Americans coming in. And a great number of those are women with small children. Thank you for your time, Nancy. We'll look forward to hearing the story. Thank you. Due to a combination of efforts, Tucson's homeless population is on the decline. But this year, the number of homeless who do not go to shelters has increased. Andrew Brown went to Santa Rita Park at 4th Avenue and 22nd Street to meet some of the men and women who spend much of their days there, finding ways to survive in triple-digit heat. You can never starve in Santa Rita Park because there's a lot of people that help you here on the streets. Even though it's cloud coverage, I'm trying to stay out of the heat, so we're still staying in the trees. Wet grass, wet grass is good. And the sprinkles, sprinklers come on, yeah, it's good. Do you live on the streets? Do you go to a shelter at night? No, I live on the street. And how come you don't go to a shelter? There are a lot of rules you have to go under, and I don't want to follow the rules. i just rather be out here where I can do whatever I want. I am trying to get on Social Security, but I don't know what's going to happen with that. But if I did, I would be off the streets. I'm just going to have to tough it out again another summer. Ah, dirty red, they call me. I got myself in trouble, made a lot of stupid decisions in, in young life, you know. And now I'm paying, not really paying the consequences, but, you know, got to live Do you go to shelters? Do you have a place no, to No, I don't go to shelters at all. I will not do shelters. Why not? I just don't like them. Michael Hernandez, I put on weight, I'm not in shape for the, I'm living in this chair right now. What are you going to do next week when it starts to get like 110? I don't know, I'm really worried about it. Really worried about it, I don't know. How come you don't go to a shelter? Uh, because they kick you out early in the morning. And I can't go too far in, in this chair, I mean it's very hard. I don't. I just don't have the strength anymore like I did. I just kind of giving up, you know, in a way. I don't know what to do. Go to press. You know, you'll feel like you're a man anymore when you get like this. It's terrible, my friend. I don't have regrets. I regret the time going by so quickly. 
but uh, I'm from a major divorce and gave away the kids and all of a sudden you turn around and here I am in my 60s <laughs> with not a lot of financial things to show for it but it can be rough holidays birthdays things like that you can get down but just sometimes loneliness I usually can turn it over in prayer when it gets real hot do you start to worry about some of these these guys uh, yeah, especially those that drink alcohol. You're not supposed to, but, you know, we're all adults. Do you stay out on the streets? Yeah. Where do you stay? Um, I just stay everywhere, man. <laughs> Are you having a beer? Yeah, I had a beer, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. one or a couple? I don't know. They just, uh, People just walk up to me and give me beer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, How old are you? Um, I don't know. You don't know? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm happy. I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Thanks for talking to me. No, thank you for talking yeah. with me. Yeah. I don't know. What do you want? What, what, what would help you get off the streets? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just, I don't know. I walked into the park and I had a bottle of whiskey. And I said, hey, what's your name, brother? He Jack said, my name's Matt. I said, would you like a shot of whiskey? And he said, yeah. So I sat down and drank whiskey with him and every day I come back over to him. We're a bunch of drunk sons of bitches. And here we are, but at least we're having a good time with it, right? It's not so bad for all of us because we do the wrong thing and we get a beer, Teresa, and we drink the mother, oh, sorry. And we drink the, yeah, shut up, this. I already told the commercial guy here, I already drink the beer. I'm not cussing him out, but I've already said about a thousand cuss words. I'm a white son of a chest. No, I didn't say you was a white son of a chest. I said you was a white wackadilly. Do I have to talk into this? Hey! <laughs> you look like a carrot. I look like a carrot? No, your microphone does. How does everybody feel about it? They feel like they're hot or we're in the desert, you know? Ask around. And do you stay in shelters at night or do you go find your own place? No. Why not? Never have been in a shelter. I've been homeless 35 years, never been in a shelter. What's above you? Sun, sky. What's below you? Ground. What's on both sides all the way around you? The earth. We are a part of it all. And a part of it all means no matter where you're at, you're always there. You can live it or live with it. I live it. That story was produced by Andrew Brown. You can see photos he took in the park on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Softball was invented in the 1800s as an indoor game played with a broomstick and a balled-up boxing glove. In the sport's nearly 130-year history, it has been, at various points, an Olympic sport and a traveling vaudeville act, and has been called many names, mushball, lightning ball, kitten ball, 
But above all, it was inclusive, not just of women, but of people of all different shapes and sizes, and from all different walks of life. It was an everyman's game that also appealed to outsiders and amassed tens of millions of fans around the world, without ever becoming mainstream. Tucson resident Erica Westley didn't know much about softball when she started researching her book, Fast Pitch, The Untold History of Softball and the Women Who Made the Game. But she discovered a number of surprising stories about how this often female-driven sport became a popular American pastime. Players like Bertha Tickey and Joan Joyce may not have appeared on Wheaties boxes, in fact no softball player has, but they each had the kind of long, winning career that any athlete can respect. The pitching, especially historically, was really dominant, partly just because the pitcher is closer to the batter, so the reaction time is less, and they don't get fatigued as easily either because the games are shorter and the underhand pitching is kind of a more natural motion. So the fast pitch pitchers can be super dominant. I think a lot of times it just comes down to psychological factors and things like that that can throw the pitcher off his or her game. What are a couple of the primary factors that have allowed women to shine in the sport of fast pitch softball? Well, I think the biggest thing was just that they had a chance to really play it competitively, the same rules as the men were playing from an early stage. And they didn't have that chance in a lot of other sports, including basketball, which was pretty watered down in most of the country starting you know, around the same time in the 1930s or so. And softball, it kind of all these really competitive female athletes got funneled into fast pitch softball because there were so few opportunities elsewhere. So it just became kind of the sport for really competitive female athletes early in the 20th century. When was the heyday of fast pitch? During the 1940s, 50s, and then going into the 60s. But by the late 60s, most of the men had dropped out of the sport and women were still playing it, but there weren't as many companies and local groups sponsoring these really competitive teams that had existed in the 40s and 50s. You also make an interesting point in your book that equal rights for women and what was called at that time the women's lib movement in the 60s and 70s didn't really help the sport that much. It was kind of an interesting dichotomy there. Women who were into sports weren't necessarily supporters of the feminist movement, and people in the feminist movement weren't necessarily supporters of sports. So they weren't necessarily working together and overlapping that much. A lot of the women who were on these softball teams came from working class backgrounds. They weren't necessarily attending college like many of the women on, on the feminist side were. So, I mean, there was some overlap in that Billie Jean King was a very prominent feminist and she helped sponsor this professional softball league starting in the mid-70s. You talk about a lot of the standout players of the game. Um, a woman named Joan Joyce had a remarkable career in that sport and many others. But pretty much the central character that emerges in your book, though, is Bertha Reagan Tickey. If you were going to tell someone over coffee who Bertha was, where would you start? What would you say about her? I think I would start with saying that she grew up on a farm in the Depression era in Central California, playing baseball with her six brothers, and then switched to softball. And before she was even out of high school, was playing for this glamorous Los Angeles area softball team. She stayed with them and played with them until World War II and then came back after the war. And then eventually, by the 1950s, was recruited to play softball for a company-sponsored team in Connecticut. They paid for her to fly and move all the way across the country with her 13-year-old daughter. And she continued to 
pitch for that team and win national titles with them until she was in her late 40s. So she had one of the longest semi-professional athletic careers for a woman at, at that time. What was Bertha's strength as a fast pitch player? Well, she had really worked on her pitching techniques over the years. So she she knew exactly where she wanted the ball to go. And her biggest trick was really psychological, where she could kind of psych out the batters. They knew her reputation by a certain point. And she studied them relentlessly and had <laughs> fantastic memories. So she had notes on all of their batting styles and knew what would trip them up and She had hundreds of no-hitters, hundreds of strikeouts, and her record was just incredible. She could throw rise balls and drop balls. Both can be tricky to hit. But her delivery was unusual. She used a delivery called the figure eight that started behind the back and then sort of wrapped around kind of in a swirling motion with a flick of the wrist. So it wasn't a super power delivery. She didn't throw particularly hard or fast, but... It was enough to to make batters strike out right and left. Yeah, you have a quote in your book where she says, it gave the ball a little hop, and when they went to swing at it, it wasn't there. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That was great. Tell us about some historic times when women's fast-pitch players ended up meeting Major League Baseball players on the field. Yeah, the main one that comes to mind is Joan Joyce, who Joan was sort of Bertha's successor at the Breakettes. She was about 20 years younger. And and the team, let's go back and say the name of the team because we haven't said it yet. Right, the Raybestos Breakettes. But where did that name come from? Um, well, they were named after Raybestos made car brake linings. There's sort of this history of softball pitchers pitching against baseball players. So Joan Joyce struck out Ted Williams in the early 1960s at a charity event in Connecticut. And, you know, it was for fun, but these baseball players like Ted Williams, Babe Ruth, they were still very seriously trying to get a hit. So it wasn't for show or anything like that. But um, really it's just, you know, the differences. If you haven't played fast pitch and faced a, a strong pitcher, then it's just not, it's different enough that you wouldn't be used to it. And it takes an skill and training to be able to to get a hit off a pitcher like that. The recount of the uh, story of when Joan Joyce pitched to Ted Williams and struck him out is a highlight of the book, and it was obviously a highlight of Joan Joyce's life. Yeah, well, especially in New England, Ted Williams is a legend, and so to strike him out, um, I think it really made her kind of a local celebrity. I mean, she already was, in a way, a local celebrity just for her pitching for the breakouts, but it helped solidify her as, as a local sports figure. And she was only in her early 20s, you know, still in college when she went up against Ted Williams. So she was still starting out in her athletic career at the time. And in recent years, um, Jenny Finch, who's going to be very well known to most of our listeners, she has done the same thing. Yeah, she um, also went up against professional baseball players like Mike Piazza, and similarly, it's they, they can't hit it. And Ginny Finch has achieved a kind of a unique status for a female athlete even today. Yeah, she was really a breakout star after the 2004 Olympics. Of course, people in Arizona would know her from before that since she won national titles with the U of A team before 2004. You know, it really helped spread the sport of softball to young girls in this country and gave them someone to look up to and emulate. A lot of the girls started wearing the same headbands that she would wear. And a lot of players, I think, got into pitching because of her. There aren't that many books written about women's sports. And I also admit, not being much of a sports fan, I don't read sports books. 
but I still found it refreshing to read a book about athletes who enjoyed their game and who didn't have scandals every five pages. There seems to be a much more down-to-earth quality, and granted, we're not talking about a major league sport with huge paychecks attached to it, but at the same time, there's still time and time again in your book stories of teamwork and respect for the, the team leader. Yeah, I think these were women who led regular lives in, in many respects, but they really cared and I think appreciated the opportunities that they had to to play on a team like the Breakettes or the Phoenix Ramblers, which was a big team here in Arizona. They appreciated the opportunity to, to play for a competitive team and to represent their towns. So I think it was really important to them. They worked hard and they played hard. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It would be nice if maybe there were more opportunities for, for women in sports to get so rich that they behave badly. But <laughs> that we're not at that stage yet. Maybe We someday. can help. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe. Erica Wesley's book, Fast Pitch, The Untold History of Softball and the Women Who Made the Game, has just been published by Simon & Schuster. Earlier this summer, DiMolo asked the question, what have you celebrated recently and why? One of the answers received led Sophia Paliza Ka to a local celebration of family and history. At the Pascoyaki Arts Festival, people crowd around a taped-off area at the end of the parking lot. A few men are fiddling with a bright blue boxy car. After 10 minutes of waiting and false starts, suddenly there's action. That's the sound of the front end of a car bouncing up above the heads of the crowd and back down. It's called a car hop. Rows of other gleaming cars line the parking lot where they are judged in categories from best mural to best rust. Some of the crowd is here purely to enjoy. Oh, the cars are beautiful. I saw a gray one up there. Oh, it's gorgeous. I like Chevys. Others are here to have their own cars admired. I feel better when I get the older people that give me the thumbs up driving by or want to stop and talk than any trophy at any show can give me. Still others, like 10-year-old Deshaun Estrada, are working their way up to a lowrider car. He brought his gold chrome lowrider bike today. It has a skull on its front, and it's very shiny. Uh, this is my first bike, but it used to be an old broken-down bike, and it just replaced it with the parts. And all my family members put money into the bike. Why do you think they all helped you with this? Because we're family members, and we love each other. Car culture has long been a vibrant community in Tucson, in part because of good weather. Caravans used to cruise down 6th Avenue all night until the police started cracking down in 2000, after an increase in shootings along 4th and 6th Avenue. Now cars mostly meet in Rodeo Park. Lowriders in particular, slung low to the ground, can be seen gliding around the south and west sides of town, posted up at barbecues, church events, car washes, and quinceañeras. Lowriders go anywhere a party or celebration is happening. A recent party was for the car club The Sophisticated Few. On a sunny Saturday, they celebrated their 42nd anniversary. There's food, music, and of course, many group photos. Kids, wives, and members all wear shirts that say Sophisticated Few in ornate script. We're, uh, we've been here 42 years. Another club is still don't exist no more. 
my full name is Pete Lopez, but they call me Love. We just, that was, there was, back then there was like, you're a kid or a teenager, you just want to get into cars. You want, you like, you like the car. You're seeing somebody else's car tonight and it's, hey, I want to get one too. So you just find a car somewhere and start working on it. We didn't have no mechanics. We didn't have, we had to learn everything by ourselves. Low riding, he says, it can be an escape, a culture in which kids grow up in, which keeps them at home and out of gangs. People who wouldn't know, like, what is a low rider? Well, the rider is a, like a, like a lifestyle, something that you like. It's like what you're doing. It's like reporting what you like to do. That's what it is. You enjoy what you do. We're the same way, but we do our cars. We show all our, all our talent or art or whatever we got into our cars. And you do the same thing. You go out and have interviews. That's what gets you going. That's what gets your blood going. Same thing with us. Probably the biggest old timer here is former president of the club, Big O. The O stands for Otis. He's a man known around Tucson. There's people that every day I see people say, hey, Big O. I don't know who they are, and I say, hey. He likes to joke that he was the first black president, not Obama. Over the last 42 years, things have changed. He misses some of the old school culture. Because it was, you know, more partying. <laughs> you know, I'm a single man, and just more parties. I miss that a lot. I mean, we used to crew, like I say, we used to crew six. Go one end of it and come back and cruise again. and Just about all night. You know, all the cars get behind each other and they just ride down and wave at the girls and cruise up and down the street. Have your music up loud. Show off your car. The sophisticated few may have turned 42 this year, but Big O turned 80. He still tries to stay involved with the club. I still go places, but I don't go out of town that much. And for as a, I watch a lot of TV and reading books, I, I'm not a good reader, you see. I, I went to the 10th grade, so that's the education I have. But I'm not stupid, I'm, you know. I know right and wrong in that way. And I get, you know, through life pretty good, I, real good. The club was there for him when Big O went through one of his worst times, when his 20-year-old son, who he calls Little O, was shot and killed. He ran with a... Buddy Hill was a gangster. But he was a little old friend, and I didn't have nothing against him, you know. Hey, we knew what he was, what he did. The old, just took up with him, you know. They were just friends. And uh, he had burnt some people and other stuff. The guy did. He went into prison. When he come back out, well, he supposed to took care of something, and he didn't. And they put a contract out on him. And uh, the guy fulfilled the contract. And Lil O was with him, and hell, he killed Lil O, too. The sophisticated few helped him to raise funds to bury Lil O. He was the one that was supposed to carry on the tradition of low riding. 
Now, it's up to Bigo's granddaughter, Alicia Ramirez, to continue the family legacy. <laughs> I, I didn't have a choice. It was, it's in my DNA. There's no, there's no option for me. She's 23, and she got her first car at 18, a Chevy Love. Like I remember, um, I remember the first time I hit the hydraulics in my car. I remember the first time it leaked. I remember the first time I heard my engine start. I remember the first time my engine broke. When you're riding in a caravan and you're riding around and like in Tucson, when we're going up a mountain, it's just a feeling of, of family, of brotherhood, of everyone's like, wow, look at the cars. I mean, now she's working on an El Camino. And she emphatically told her fiancé, Anthony, that their future kids will be encouraged to work on cars, too, as long as they get their own. He's like, yeah, we're going to fix this. It's going to be nice because it's going to be cool because when you have kids, you can give them a car. I said, no. He said, no. I said, no. They're going to get a $1,500 car themselves and have to build it themselves just like I did. They're not getting any handouts. They're going to have to build the car themselves. For Dimelo Stories, I am Sofia Palisakach. Dimelo is part of a national initiative called Finding America, presented in collaboration with AIR, the Association for Independence in Radio, supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood with assistance from Isaac Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. <laughs>